Well, uh, we made it, y'all. 2023. Yeah. Amen. We're here. I didn't think we were going to make it. <laughs> A couple times, I was like, Lord, just take me out. <laughs> Man. Uh, well, uh, it is good to be in the house of the Lord with you guys. Uh, you know, the church, uh, Mac Avenue has a calendar we follow, uh, but the uh, capital C, Universal Church, has a calendar as well. And uh, Western uh, Christianity holds that uh, today is Epiphany Sunday, which means um, we are celebrating the arrival of Jesus, our one true God and King. Amen. And uh, it only be fitting, uh, one of the texts that often uh, preachers will go to is the visitation of the Magi when they went to journey for many months to go and lavish Jesus with their, wor- with their worship and their costly gifts. So that's where we're going to go today. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'll give you a few moments. Say, I'm there when you get there. Okay, good. I like a responsive church. (laughs) Feel free to yell and shout and have a good time today. I want to crack open uh, maybe a familiar text for some of you, maybe all of you, and uh, hopefully, just with the help of the Spirit, maybe provide some fresh insights. Amen? Amen. Well, I want to begin with this. Key people and defining moments in history uh, must be given the worth they deserve. Uh, They must be given the celebration that that moment deserves, or that key figure deserves. I I was reminded of this as I was uh, scrolling through uh, the NCAA Division I college basketball uh, highlight videos, and there's a top 10. All of them are good. There's some buzzer beater uh, victories, and one in particular, uh, for those of you who don't know, March Madness is a, a college basketball tournament where 68 teams compete, but there's only one winner. Just a little context. But in this particular game that I came across, it was uh, 2016, Villanova, uh, a private college in uh, Pennsylvania, the Wildcats, versus the North Carolina Tar Heels. Hey, okay, okay. All right, calm down. Uh, So anyways, it was 74-74. There was only four seconds to go, and Villanova had the ball. It was inbounded and brought up the court and quickly passed to Chris Jenkins, a a small forward. And he was just a couple steps behind the three-point line. And he had just a half a step on his opponent. And he rears back, and he let the ball go, and there was... Point, sec, point something seconds to go, so it was legit. The ball had left his fingertips, and swish, the ball goes in. The Villanova crowd goes wild. They rush out onto the court, confetti everywhere, fireworks. There's a huge celebration. Uh, Chris Jenkins, you know, has a huge smile on his face. The Villanova crowd surrounds him, and everybody is cheering. They're on their feet. 
Why? Because this key moment must be given the worth it was deserved, right? And we can see this throughout sports history and in other areas of history, but quite possibly, or uh, 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 mostly when we think of sporting events, we always want to see that buzzer beater victory, amen? But especially when it's our team. Uh, I take us here because that's exactly what we see here in Matthew chapter 2. But in an ultimate way. Because in Matthew chapter 2, some wise men from the east go and visit Jesus, who happens to be the one true God and King of the world. Amen? The figure above all figures, the defining moment of all defining moments, is right here, saints, right here in Matthew chapter 2. And Jesus isn't but two years old. That's it. And already people are streaming, not just anyone, but the nations are coming to worship Jesus. Why ought we not worship him? Amen? Why ought we not give him our praise? So that's what I want us to hang our hats on today. Here's the big idea for this text and today's message. It's this. Jesus is the one true God and King of the world, and therefore, he must be given the worth he deserves. So with that big idea in mind, I want to read our text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Amen? All right. Starting in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God. 
And uh, before we consider it, it's only right that we go to him and ask him to illuminate it to us. Amen. Father, this is your word and help us to tremble before it. Help us to have contrite hearts. Lord, because without it, we can't hear you. So, Lord, turn up the frequency of your word and turn down all the noise of our temptations and our complacency and our indifference even. And ignite in us a passion to long to hear your life-giving words. For they are just that, life. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's saints said, Amen. Well, Matthew wants to show us four human responses in this text. Four human responses to Jesus, the one true God and King of the world. All of these responses are relevant for us today, but only one of these responses happens to be the response that brings King Jesus the worth he deserves. And so I want to begin with a question this morning. Starting with this truth, Jesus is the one true God and King. Therefore, how will you respond to him? in this new year? What will your response be to this glorious God and King? I want you to keep that question in your mind as we see Matthew show us these four human responses uh, to Jesus, this God and King that has arrived. So let's just go ahead and start with the first one, the response of paranoia, deception, and rage. Paranoia, deception, and rage is the response of who? King Herod. You see, after receiving word that some men from the east, these wise men, had had come through uh, to Jerusalem, and likely they seek out kind of the theological minds of the day, like the chief priests and the scribes, Pharisees, uh, and, and, and they want to they ask them, hey, where is this newborn king of the Jews? Where is he? I mean, you can't blame him for coming to Jerusalem because this was to be the city of the great God and king. But I want you to see how Herod responds. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That is, Herod was paranoid at the very thought that this newborn king of the Jews has arrived, and oh no, this must mean the end of my kingdom. And so Herod starts immediately scheming to prevent this from happening. So, Notice in verses 4 through 6, he he calls in the religious elite of the day. And he begins to ask them where the king of the Jews was to be born. They tell him, in Bethlehem. The little town of Bethlehem. 
So Herod says, okay, cool. Then in verse 7, he secretly calls in the wise men. And he deceives them into actually thinking that he is just as passionate as them to want to go and worship this newborn king. But not so fast, because verse 16, we find out Herod's true plot. At the very moment that he heard of this, this news of the newborn king arriving, Herod began to secretly plot to kill him. Because verse 16 shows us the goal of his evil. Out of pure paranoid rage, he ordered to have all the Jewish sons, all the Jewish boys, two years old and younger, in and around Bethlehem, murdered in an attempt to kill Jesus, the newborn king. Friends, Jesus didn't just know suffering on the cross. He knew it the moment he came out of the womb. He entered a dark and oppressive world. He entered a world of genocide. Uh, he came out of the womb and he had a hit out on his head. Friends, Jesus knew suffering. But think about Herod for a moment. What are we to make of such a response? Paranoia, deception, rage. Murderous plots. A Bible scholar by the name of Michael Joseph Smith captures it perfectly. He tells us, here's the meaning of Herod's response. Herod's response is typical of people in power. Martin Luther King Jr. once wrote, History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom, watch this, give up their privileges voluntarily. Friends, as you consider the arrival of Jesus, the one true God and King of the world, who must be given the worth he deserves, what is your response to him? Who is he to you? Could you be a little like Herod? Maybe paranoid of the thought that submitting to King Jesus might mean, no, it does mean, that you must give up every bit of you to him as Lord. You must surrender your whole life to him. Does that make you paranoid? Even just a little bit? Uh, does that maybe make you start get a little sneaky maybe? Deceptive? You say, what do you mean? Maybe you're looking for some ways to try to prevent Jesus from ruling over every area of your life. Maybe you're kind of like I was uh, early on. I had one hand up to Jesus in worship, but I had another hand behind my back, tightly holding on to the things I didn't want to release to him. Uh, my certain viewpoints of the world and, and, uh, and certain secret sins I like to go and chase and enjoy. I don't know, guys. Girl, uh, gals? It seems pretty clear to me that when we meet a king, a king named Jesus, he demands not part of our life, but our whole life. But maybe that even fills you with a little 
rage. Or maybe rage is too strong. Maybe irritation. Maybe slight anger. Because the very thought of a king named Jesus ruling over your life, maybe it makes you irritated and angry because you want to keep being the king of your life. You say, well, what, is, what do you mean? You want to decide your own version of right and wrong. Maybe even just a little bit. I'm not saying this is all of you. I'm not even saying this is any of you. I'm just asking you to open your heart and see what's in there. Because by, by our very flesh, we are resistant to God. Well, I could beat that drum all morning, for myself even. But if your answer to any of these questions was yes, or even just a slight yes, then to some degree, you have Herod's response of paranoia, deception, and rage somewhere in your bones. It's somewhere in there. And the problem is, to some degree, this response is preventing you and I from giving King Jesus the full worth he deserves. So, paranoia, deception, and rage is one of the four human responses to King Jesus that we see here in this story. But there's another one. The second response to Jesus, the one true God and King of the world, is the response of anxiety. Anxiety is the response, notice, of the people of Jerusalem. You say, where do we see that? Look at, take your eyes and look at the second half of verse 3. Upon hearing the question from the wise men, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Watch this now. We're told that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So, all the people in Jerusalem joined Herod's paranoia party. Not the same, though, as Herod. Consider why they were anxious. The people of Jerusalem were anxious not because they worried that Herod would be replaced by another king. I mean, heck, who wanted to be under Herod? He was the most evil king you could be under. They wanted a new king. So that wasn't why they were anxious. But they also weren't anxious because they didn't want to see this new coming king. I mean, Israel was waiting for this king their whole lives. Starting to think, maybe he's not coming. Nope, it wasn't those two reasons. Here's why they were anxious. They were anxious because they knew the kind of volcano of evil that was about to erupt out of Herod as a result of the arrival of this new king. You see, their anxiety caused them to reason that the safest place to be was on the sidelines as a spectator, watching to see what would come of this Jesus character. What kind of king would he be? How successful would he be? Perhaps they reasoned, what's the point in getting all excited about this new king? I mean... If Herod treats him anything like he treated his favorite wife and two sons, which he killed 
out of his paranoia, then what would that mean for Jesus? His kingdom would be pretty short. And if we all flock to them, I mean, if we all flock to Jesus as our new king, and Herod catches wind, and this is the kind of evil he's capable of, well, then we're going to be cooked too. So they reasoned it's better off, we're better off playing it safe and being spectators on the sidelines because the risk seems to outweigh the reward. Uh, back in college, I used to attend college hockey, uh, uh, sorry, I used to attend professional hockey games with my college hockey teammates. And it was always a joy. It was cheap to get in. You'd always see a few good fights, some big hits. You know, it was entertaining. And uh, it never failed. I'd be at these games. And, you know, every team I played on, I was by far not the best player on the team. But when I made it up into, you know, college hockey level, uh, every team I played on uh, would have agreed that I had the most opportunity to make it pro because I was the most physical player on every team I played on. And pro hockey, uh, scouts and coaches loved that. They could find all kinds of goal scorers and playmakers, but very few, they could find very few people that were win willing to maybe drop the gloves and mix it up a little bit. And believe me, I was scared every time I did it, but I don't know, God gave me the temperament he gave me, okay? I'm filled with the Holy Ghost now. Don't be judging me. But I, I used to have some fun when I played hockey, okay? Yeah. And people said, were you a believer when you did that? Yep, I was. Uh, don't be messing with my theology. So anyways, I'd be at these games, and it never failed. A fight would break out, and my teammates would look down the row, and they'd say, this is what they call me, hey, Fuchs, Fuchs, would you fight that guy? And I'd, I'd, you know, I didn't want to appear soft, so I had to say, oh, yeah, that guy, I'll fight him any day of the week, right? Kind of blow it off, you know, knowing inside that my heart's beating. I'm like, man, that dude's tough. But I learned a, a very valuable lesson in my first uh, ever pro hockey fight. Uh, it kept me humble from then on. Uh, it kept me humble because... As I reflect back on comments like this, you know, prideful comments like, oh, yeah, I could take that guy, I realized the phenomenon that was going on. You've, you've experienced it maybe in sporting events. You might even have played a part in it. It's much easier to play the game as a spectator than to play the game as a player, right? That's all that was going on. But I also learned this valuable lesson. I learned that it's much better to be a player in the game than a spectator at the game. And as I think about this, as it pertains to our relationship with Jesus, the one true God and King of the world, I think you could definitely make a connection. When it comes to Jesus, the one true God and King of the world, what are you? Are you more of a spectator at the game? watching him safely from the sidelines? Or are you an actual player in the game? Are you a committed follower of Jesus? 
Is he everything to you? You know, a, a spectator at the game, you say, what does that look like? And uh, put that in Christianese for me. You know, attending a few church services, you know, maybe, maybe attend a fellowship group or two. You know, maybe listen to, uh, maybe turn the Christian radio station on on the way home from work. Maybe listen to a little gospel every once in a while, you know. Maybe drop in on a Bible study once a month. You know, don't want to get too crazy with it, you know. Don't want it to consume your whole life, right? No, just spectate a little bit. Just get enough of Jesus, right? You see, Jesus wants all of you, though. Because if he doesn't have all of you, you don't have any of Jesus. You don't have any of him. You see, a committed follower of Jesus is a committed disciple who learns what it, mean, what it means to follow him in your everyday life, connected to him, connected to him with the body of Christ, and learning from him how he delights to be worshipped. What would bring him the worth, the honor he deserved? So maybe you say, you know what, Pastor Kay, I, I think I'm a little bit of a spectator. I just want to tell you, like, if, if you're here, brother or sister, I love you. But quit being a spectator. You say, how do I quit being a spectator? Quit being a spectator and become a committed follower of Jesus. You say, how? By turning from your sin, repentance. Turn from your sin that is leading you in your spectating destination, your spectating direction, your spectating way of life. And through simple belief and trust, surrender your life to Jesus as your one true God and King. And then learn what it means to spend your life lavishing Him with the worth He deserves. That's how. So are you a spectator or a committed follower? I want to urge you to be a committed follower. There's nothing like being all in. There's nothing like being in the game. So surrender your life. Surrender your life to Jesus as your one true God and King. It won't be easy. It'll bring you a different kind of reputation. It may even bring you a little bit of trouble. But Jesus is worthy. Amen? Jesus is worthy. Well, I, I could spend some more time there, but we got to move on. There's another response. There's the response of paranoia, deception, and rage. There's the response of anxiety. But there's also the response of mere head knowledge. You see, after hearing this news about the birth of Jesus, the king of the Jews... Herod immediately calls in the theological minds of the day. You know, the seminary professors of the day, right? Got to get the Bible minds in here now. The chief priests and the scribes. And he asks this crew where the king of the Jews was to be born. And notice their precision. Verses 5 and 6, they respond eloquently with Micah 5 too, a prophecy clarifying that the king of the Jews was to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. I mean, duh! 
you know, Bible folk, they're sometimes prideful, right? But friends, I want you to notice this. Notice that although this group was trained in the scriptures, possessing the very knowledge of knowing the location of Jesus' birth, the king they're waiting on their whole lives, notice that they are unenthused about going to give him the worth he deserves. I mean, the wise men from the east, come on. They didn't grow up in Bible study. (laughs) They weren't taught the truth from the very beginning. But they're coming to worship Jesus and the ones with the Bible on their nightstand are unenthused about him. But why? Well, this story shows us a weird possibility, actually, I'll just say. That it's actually possible for people, believers and non-believers, to possess all the right head knowledge about King Jesus and yet not actually apply any of it to your life. It's actually, you could actually know a ton about Jesus, the King, the one true God and King of the world, and yet not live as if He's your King of your world. You see, people like this are like a body of water that is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. Their minds are full of biblical truth, but their hearts and lives are only kiddie pool deep when it comes to applying this knowledge to their lives. You say, what does it look like to apply it? It looks like to give Jesus your wholehearted devotion. To not just say he's Lord of your life, to live as if that's true. Because true liberation is living under the authority of Almighty God, who happened to come down and take on human flesh And his name is Jesus. He is the one true God and king of the world. Is he yours? Uh, There's three responses we've been discussing. Matthew shows them all in this text. And they're all human responses. They They all have human beings assigned to them. As you think about these three responses... Paranoia, deception, rage, anxiety, mere head knowledge. What response do you struggle with the most? What's the one that you personally struggle with the most, even just a little bit? Is it paranoia, deception, and rage because surrendering to the lordship of Jesus demands that you give up control over your life? Or is it anxiety? Are you afraid to go from being a spectator to a committed follower of Jesus? I would even say, do you know in the back of your mind that you aren't a committed follower, and yet you try to sport that title as if you are? That's a hard one to come to grips with. That might mean that I have to tell all my friends or family that I'm faking it. Or, like we just heard, is it mere head knowledge? Are you a vast body of head knowledge 
a big head full of biblical truth. You know a ton about King Jesus, but yet your heart, your life, if we played it on a film, it's only an inch deep. Something to think about as we enter into the new year. Or maybe you're a mixture of all three. Maybe like you can't narrow down one, but you're like, man, on any given day, I'm all of those. The problem with all of these responses, I don't know which ones you wrestle with. I know mine. Is they all fall short of giving Jesus, the one true God and King of the world, the full worth he's due. So, we've looked at the response of paranoia, deception, and rage, anxiety, and mere head knowledge, but let's end by looking at the fourth response to Jesus, the one true God and King of the world. And brothers and sisters, pay attention because you want this to be your response. Because this response is not just the goal of this entire story, it's to be the goal of your whole life. It's why you were created. Because everybody is going to worship something. The question is, who or what that something is? So what is the response, Pastor K? It's the response. Here's number four. This is the last one. It's the response of worship and love. And we see it in verses 1 and 2 and verses 9 through 11. Surprisingly, the response of worship and love came from who? The non-Jewish men who came from the east, the Magi, they're called. Now, there's scholarly debate, you know, how many were there? What was their particular ethnicity? We'll leave that to those guys. Uh, Most would suggest these were Babylonian astrologers. You say, what is that? Well, these guys would have been dope at at looking at the planets and the stars, and they would develop that study of the planets and the stars into a fine art. So that they would say things like, if there was something significant happening down here on earth, you could expect to see a sign somewhere in the sky. If there was something really significant happening in the sky amongst the planets and the stars, well, we need to look for what its connection is on earth. Because they believed the world was one big interconnected piece. And so, if it's happening down here, it's got to be happening up there. If it's happening up there, it's got to be happening down here. That's what these guys believed. Not only that, these guys would have had uh, somewhat of a familiarity with the Old Testament, the Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, because there was a, a large population of Jews living in Babylon during Jesus' day that were left over from the exile that we read about in books like Isaiah and, and uh, that we read about in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. So they would have been able to get their fingertips on the Scriptures and they wouldn't have had a grade A education, but they would have at least been cued in on that there is this king of the Jews who's supposed to come and he's going to rule not only over Israel, but the entire world. 
And so, brothers and sisters, this event is amazing because it calls to mind these prophetic hopes of texts like Psalm chapter 72, verse 8, 10 and 11, and Isaiah 60, verse 3 and verse 6. We don't have time to look at the details of those, but suffice it to say, all of these texts spoke of a coming Jewish king who would come from the line of David, And he would rule not only over Israel, he would bless not only Israel, but he would bless the entire world with his sovereign, saving, healing, restoring rule. You say, okay, cool Bible fact. No, you you, you can't miss this. These non-Jewish wise men coming to worship Jesus, the newborn king of the Jews, and bring him their gifts is an early fulfillment of those ancient promises. And it's not just an event, it's deeply practical. Because think about, notice, three unique characteristics about these wise men's response to King Jesus. First, notice that their response to Jesus, the one true God and King of the world, was joyful. Verse 10 says, when they saw the star, that is the star that led them to Jesus, they rejoiced, what? Exceedingly with great joy. Picture the wise men's joy in coming to worship Jesus like this. Imagine the excitement that would erupt at Ford Stadium if the Detroit Lions hit the game-winning field goal to win Super Bowl 57. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Some people might be mad right now because they beat your team. Well, well, so what? They beat your team. And the crowd goes wild, and the confetti goes wild, and there's fireworks in the stands. Why? Because everybody's joyful when their champ wins, right? So their worship was joyful. But not only was it joyful, it was also natural. You say, how was it natural? Well, look at verse 11. We're told there that, and going into the house, these were the wise men, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You say, well, how is that natural? Their response is natural because think about it. They responded to Jesus in accordance with the way that they were brought up in their culture to give honor to a king. So they honored him in the way that came most natural to them. In their ethnic culture. You see, some of y'all hear the name Jesus and you can't help but scream and shout a little bit. You can't help but tap your foot. You can't help but sway your hips a little bit, right? I ain't never seen it in here, but some of of y'all might want to run around a little bit. Go ahead and run around a little bit. You know why? Because you're doing what comes most natural to you. When you hear the name Jesus and you get excited. Some of y'all, you might be like, shh, I'm trying to meditate on Jesus. Because you contemplative than a mug when it comes to Jesus. You just want to, you just want to, shh, everybody be quiet. Jesus is here. And I got to think deep thoughts about him, right? 
Some of y'all, y'all are like, man, forget that, right? None of this is wrong. These are differences. They're cultural differences. Because you're worshiping Jesus in the way that comes most natural to you. So their worship was joyful. It was natural. That's not all. It was also sacrificial. Verse 1, Matthew calls them wise men from the east. Consider the sacrifice that these wise men from the east made. They left their jobs, their families, their homes to travel for many months through foreign lands, likely on lumpy, smelly camels, through rigorous terrain and risking gangsters along the way that could have jumped out and robbed them. Why? All to come bring their worship and their best gifts to Jesus. The second half of verse 11 says that they, after falling down in worship, opened their treasure chest and gave Jesus costly gifts. These wise men gave not only themselves to King Jesus, falling down in worship, but get this, they also sacrificially gave their gifts to King Jesus. Consider their gift giving. Like, uh, consider their gift giving to Jesus from the world of parenting for a minute. Just the other day, I'm sitting at the dinner table. It's Monica and I, you know, my booski. We're having dinner. She tells me, hey, sweetie, be home at this time. It's family dinner, okay? And so I got to, you know, you know, Pastor K, I'll be out. Hey, y'all, what's up? Trying to talk and stuff. And Monica's like, this dude told me he'd be home at 530. Anyways, that was a day I made it home just on time. We were having dinner. It was a joyful time. Evie is sitting in her high chair, and she's got food caked all over her face. If you don't know Evie, that's the little cute thing down front, okay? She's 11 months, you're, you're uh, 11, 12 months? Almost. Y'all, don't, don't, don't worry about it. That wasn't, that wasn't in my manuscript. All right, so keep it moving. She's cute. Okay, she's my daughter. That's all you need to get. So there she was. She's eating. She's got some rice, right? She grabs that rice, you know, that has a, they don't grab it like that, they, like that. <laughs> and she gives me a big goblet of rice, some, you know, nasty face and this big smile. Come on, daddy, take it. And so, of course, I didn't need it, nor did I want it, but I took it. <laughs> Because that's my daughter, right? And you take good gifts from your daughter, right? And your son. Parents are the primary givers of the house. We don't need our children's gifts, do we? But we accept them joyfully. You know why? Because they are the tokens of their love for us. And friends, these wise men, they respond to Jesus, the one true God and King, by giving him the joyful worship he deserved in the way that came most natural to them in their culture. And they opened up their treasure chest and they gave Jesus their costly tokens of love. There really is only four responses when it comes down to it, to Jesus, the one true God and King of the world. Paranoia, deception, rage, anxiety, mere head knowledge. But there's one response. There's one response 
gives Jesus the worth he deserves. And that response is worship and love. That response is to praise God with everything you are. And to lavish God with all of your love. And so as we come into this new year, 2023, Jesus is the one true God and King of the world. What is your response going to be to Him? I urge you, let it be praise. I urge you, let it be to lavish Him with your tokens of love. You say, what are my tokens of love? Everybody in here has been given a life. Everybody has some opportunities, some more than others. Everybody has time and everybody has talents. And everybody has some amount of money. So brothers and sisters, open up your treasure chest and with all the creativity God gives you, lavish him. Lavish him with your tokens of love. After all, how could you not? Because think about the end of Jesus' earthly life. As he stared power right in the eyes, Pontius Pilate. And he didn't receive worship and love. He received a crown of thorns on his head. He received a sign over his head in an act to belittle him. King of the Jews. Here's the king of the Jews. He received uh, not only a crown of thorns in his head and a sign over him to shame him, but he received nails in his hands and feet. And he was stretched out wide. And he died. And he died. And he died. Why? Because that's what love looks like. That's what it looked like for him to love us. Because we were the ones in the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, friends, why did he do this? People like you and me, from the very sin that prevents us from being the worshipers and lovers we were created to be. You say, lover, yeah, lover of Jesus, lover of God, worshiper of the one true God and King. I mean, after all, if Villanova crowd could rush out on the court and confetti can go wild and, and fireworks can erupt, well then, what's our excuse? God has come down in the person of Jesus Christ, and He deserves all the worship and all the love. So what will your new year look like? This? No. This. This. Because He's worthy, God. He's worthy. You're worthy, oh God. You're worthy. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You're worthy, God. Come on, tell him he's worthy. You're worthy, God. You're worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Forgive us for our idols. Forgive us for our...
poor responses, our poor excuse of responses. Lord, make us worshipers of you. Make us joyful worshipers of you. Make us open up our arms and love you the best way we can. Because your arms are so much bigger around us. We worship you. Come on, we worship you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah.